Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, a very special. Welcome to a very special uh, Medical Grand Rounds, uh, co-sponsored by the MD-PhD program and the Department of Medicine, uh, this continuing medical education program of, uh, of the Department of Medicine. Um, our speaker today will regale us with uh, stories about amyloid, I'm sure, and uh, has no uh, commercial <laughs> conflicts of interest to report. And uh, we're going to uh, have the opportunity to hear uh, one of his mentees and his uh, student host of his visit here for the past uh, couple days, uh, Jeff Noble. Uh, Jeff is a graduate of the University of British uh, uh, Columbia and joined the MD-PhD program in 2009. So this is his fifth year in his MD-PhD program. And he's studying uh, prion unfolding uh, issues in familial, familial fatal insomnia which we all have a lot of experience with, uh, and uh, is doing some great work um, uh, with that. So Jeff, uh, please introduce us to you. Thanks, Dr. Ross. Uh, so as Dr. Ross says, each year, the Department of Medicine generously gives the MD-PhD students uh, the opportunity to invite a physician scientist to present medicine grand rounds. As a group, we select an individual whose career um, we aspire to emulate, one that blends patient care and scientific discovery. Our speaker today, Dr. Art Horwich, has not only blended these two disciplines, his research has also fundamentally changed our understanding of how cells work, in particular, the way in which cells produce properly folded functional proteins in the crowded and chaotic environment that is the interior of a cell. Dr. Horwich obtained his bachelor's and MD degrees from Brown and went on to do a pediatrics residency at Yale New Haven Hospital. After a postdoctoral fellowship at the Salk Institute, he returned to Yale as an attending physician in medical genetics and soon began an independent research career with a focus on the process by which proteins are imported into the mitochondrial matrix. At the time that Dr. Horwich was starting his lab, this process of protein import was not well understood. Though it was known that proteins had to be unfolded in order to cross the inner mitochondrial membrane. Somewhat on a whim, Dr. Horwich and his lab wondered whether, after entering the mitochondrial matrix, proteins might refold to their native state spontaneously, or whether there might be cellular machinery that assists with that process. I should point out that at that time, the idea of a protein folding machine was truly heretical. It was widely believed that proteins adopted their functional three dimensional shape spontaneously as had been demonstrated by Christian Amundsen in the 1960s for ribonuclease and other proteins. Going against the grain, Dr. Horwich and his lab set out to find evidence for such a folding machine and were rewarded in short order by the identification of a yeast mutant that could import mitochondrial proteins but could not produce active mitochondrial enzymes and protein complexes. Thus began more than two decades of work towards the understanding of a novel family of protein folding machines called chaperonins which play an essential cellular role in all organisms, allowing proteins to fold correctly and on biologically relevant timescales at the relatively high temperatures and solute concentrations found within living cells. In recent years, Dr. Horwich and his lab have become interested in the question of why chaperonins and other folding machines fail to prevent the accumulation of misfolded proteins in particular diseases, like neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and ALS. Among his many accomplishments and awards, Dr. Horwich has been an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute since 1990. He is the Sterling Professor of Genetics and Pediatrics at Yale School of Medicine 
and a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the Institute of Medicine. In 2011, for their discoveries concerning the cell's protein folding machinery, he and Ulrich Hartl received the Lasker Award for Basic Medical Research, one of biomedical science's highest honors. Please join me and the other students of the MD-PhD program in welcoming Dr. Horowitz to Dartmouth. We are honored to have you with us, and we look forward to your talk. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. That uh, generous introduction uh, <clears throat> would be well hurt by my mother. I think she's, she's uh, waiting for me to go into medical practice. She's <laughs> saying, when are you going to open the office, dear? And I keep saying, no, 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 no. There, there are other things that are distracting me. Anyhow, so uh, it, it's really a huge honor to be selected for this. Um, particularly, as you'll see in the slide or two, I really have um, strong ties to uh, Dartmouth and Hanover. Um, so I'm really honored to be here. Um, the, the students and I had a really great time going to dinner last night. And I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation this morning to see if I can add anything to you know, help people think it through. Um, uh, I guess I, I, I'm not going to talk about all of the work that was just referred to. But I, I must say that um, probably the take home for me was just follow your nose. If you want to do bench experiments, you go do bench experiments. If you want to go see patients, you go see patients. And there are ways to do the two things together. And I've been able to do that and really have enjoyed both of those things. Uh, I'm still a bit of a split personality on that. I have stopped going to genetics clinic fairly recently. But I really miss that because I, I think that um, being able to go see uh, a patient uh, in the clinic or at the bedside is a humbling experience. You realize how much we really don't know, and it really drives you to think further about what we can do at the basic level in the laboratory. So I think that the two really give and take with each other in a very nice way. And I applaud the students who are undertaking this sort of split what often seems like a very split type of approach to learning, but which I think uh, affords the possibility of making really unique discoveries with the large background that you have and your, and your skills to be able to do um, basic discovery work. So I, I thought what I would do is just give you a, a quick summary of what I'm going to touch on, because people may have to come or go. So. Um, First of all, I do want to thank Jeff. He's been uh, a chaperone extraordinaire over the last year or two. And I, I, it's really been a pleasure to meet him. We met uh, at a meeting here about a year and a half ago. And I got to hear about some of his freon work. And um, I, it, it's been really interesting to follow his trajectory. Um, I also want to thank Lara for organizing things for me. So I'm going to spend a few slides, just a few, on protein folding and misfolding and sort of what we've done with chaperones but talk about the other components, the ubiquitin proteasome and autophagy, that are additional avenues for getting rid of misfolded uh, dangerous proteins. Uh, and I'll give some uh, examples of what I think are the early efforts to actually adjust the machinery to compensate for what are pathogenic proteins that can lead to neurodegeneration, for, for example, but also other degenerative diseases. Then I want to talk about amyloids, which is really you know, sort of the basis to this, because they are the common sort of endpoint structure of, of many of these misfolded states. And I'll just talk briefly about their structures and the notion that 
um, at least in one case, a stabilizer has been made that could stabilize a native state and prevent it from forming an amyloid. Then I want to talk about infectious amyloid because I think PRP remains, you know, one of the really sort of out there, right at the front for discovery um, molecules that uh, may be the first to really be amenable to therapy. So there are a variety of things being tried, and they're all really interesting to think about. Then, of course, the giant in the room is A-beta and the approaches that are being taken. Because A-beta disease has the capacity to completely bankrupt our society. Uh, and so we really do need some sort of reasonable therapy in the near term. And then I'll, I'll, a few last considerations of other avenues that could be taken. OK, so uh, my attachment. So uh, my uh, oldest son, Mikey, graduated in double zero from um, the undergrad school here. And so uh, those were four wonderful years of coming up to Hanover and brought me a lot closer to Bill because Mikey chose to go do some experiments in Bill's lab. Unfortunately, he, Bill and I have failed to convert Mike all the way to science. Uh, he's a physician practicing in Northampton at this point. I'm hoping he's going to change his mind and come back to the lab, because he was very successful in Phil Zamor's lab studying argonaut proteins. And he had a string of cell papers that was just unbelievable. OK, well, that said, uh, we have to go back to the greatest protein folding experiment of all time. So that was carried out by Christian Anfinson in about 1958-59, and he was awarded a Nobel Prize in 1972 for this amazing experiment. So if you're not familiar with it, basically what he asked was a very simple question. Can you take an enzyme that has an activity, a ribonuclease activity, as Jeff referred to, completely unfold it using urea denaturin and breaking its disulfide bonds with mercaptoethanol, so that it's just a random coil, a zillion different unfolded conformations and solution, and ask if you remove the denaturants and the reductant, and the protein actually find its way back to the enzymatically active form. I mean, there's this Leventhal paradox that people talk about where a protein can sample more conformations than you know stars in the universe. And the time for doing that, if it's a random process, is infinite. You can't do it. And so what Anfinson discovered was that, indeed, ribonuclease could find its way back to the native state. Just a, one of the most beautiful and astonishing experiments. I, I was an undergrad when he received the Nobel Prize for this. And I, I wasn't aware that such an experiment was being done. It just blew all of us. And I, I was working in a fat cell lab down at Brown University at that point. It just blew us away. And for days, we were talking about, OK, what molecules can we take in our lab and replicate this kind of experiment? And so I never thought I would have anything to do with protein folding. I just admired the beauty of what Anfinson did. And so the conclusion from this experiment, um, importantly, is that the amino acid sequence of a polypeptide chain contains all of the information that's necessary for it to properly fold into its unique native structure. And that structure, Anfinson positive and later proved, lies at an energetic minimum. So it's like, well, we're in the, the area of the world where there are lots of ski hills. The energetic minimum is the bottom of the ski hill. And protein folding is often represented as energy landscapes that are basically predicated on the idea that the native state will lie at the minimum. OK. So then Anfinson did not reckon with the notion that there might be some alternative energetic minimum that could be toxic to human beings, to cells, to organisms. 
And that is that an unfolded or misfolded protein could go to a structure like this, a very stable amyloid fibril that is informationless, as I'll show you at a higher uh, level of resolution in a few slides. Um, so in fact, it's been shown that virtually any protein, and this is an experiment from Chris Dobson, can ultimately, under the right conditions, be converted to an amyloid fibril, lose all its activity, and just become an informationless, stable, worthless fibril uh, that's inert, basically. Um, but let me comment first, though, that in the cell, beyond the Anfinson experiment, there were some problems. Uh, not every protein would behave the way Anfinson's ribonuclease experiment did. And then the biotechnology industry, when it started to try to make uh, mammalian proteins and bacteria, discovered that a lot of time, all you got was just an aggregated glop at the end of the E. coli cell, so-called inclusion body. And so that suggested that Anfinson might be right about the thermodynamics, but that under physiologic conditions, there was a need for kinetic assistance for proteins to reach the native state, that is, in a living cell. And so a bunch of us coming from all sorts of different fields more or less wound up forming this community that landed on a whole set of specialized proteins that help protein folding in the cell, where there's, as Jeff alluded to, a very high local concentration of other proteins and solute. Uh, and where the temperature is not necessarily room temperature and conducive to spontaneous folding. So these chaperones, as I'll talk about in a, for a minute or two, are kinetic assistance to protein folding. In no way do they violate Anthony's <laughs> principles. The primary amino acid sequence is the thing that's going to drive the native state. The problem is that when a protein starts folding in vivo, it has a chance to misfold, to go off pathway. And the idea of the chaperones is either to forestall or reverse that by virtue of a very simple principle that Anfinson actually thought about. He was worried about this kinetic problem. He never quite landed on it. If there had been more crystal structures out there at that point, he would have figured it out. So I'll come to that in just a minute. OK, so while we've been working on chaperone systems, the neurobiology community has been showing that at least, and the medical community in general has landed on quite a number of aggregation diseases, but I'm going to focus somewhat on the neurodegenerative diseases, <laughs> that a whole bunch of these different conditions are associated with aggregation and misfolding and aggregation of specific polypeptide chains associated with specific diseases and occurring in specialized groups of neurons. So for example, Parkinson's disease involves the nigro striatum. And you get these Lewy bodies that are uh, accretions of an, a protein called alpha-synuclein, um, whose function seems to be something to do with quality control of synaptic vesicle trafficking. We still don't precisely know what it's doing, but it's, it's very abundant in the presynaptic zone uh, at synapses, for example. So that's associated with Parkinson's disease. And there are other genetic causes of Parkinson's that I won't have time to go into. Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid plaque that has been identified for you know, decades uh, is known now to be composed of, of more or less fibrils of the A-beta peptide, lead, this little red peptide cleaved from a larger precursor protein. Prion disease is known when PRP misfolds to PRP scraping in mad cow disease or in the spongiform encephalopathies. That is a, those are amyloid fibrils that look like this, basically, at the ultrastructural and uh, structural level. Uh, 
In Lou Gehrig's disease, you have a bunch of proteins that have now been associated in aggregates found in motor neurons. These are not necessarily amyloid fibrils. They're accretions and aggregates, but we don't know how ordered they are. These RNA binding proteins seem to be making what are called sort of stress granules that are probably ordered or disordered arrays of low-complexity sequences coming together, work of Steve McKnight and others from the last couple years. Huntington's disease, we're not as sure that Huntington aggregates are really amyloids, but they, they probably do have some sort of regular structure that's argued about. They probably do wind up ultimately, they start out as sort of alpha helical accretions, but they wind up being beta sheet uh, stable uh, misfolded states. Okay, so the entirety of the molecular chaperone game can be summarized sort of by this slide. So a folded protein has a greasy interior, a hydrophobic core that holds the polypeptide chain together in many respects. So when it's folding, those hydrophobic sequences sort of collapse and come together and stabilize the protein in its native state. And so the idea with the molecular chaperones is that under stress conditions or during production of proteins, they can expose these hydrophobic surfaces and they attract each other. They don't really attract each other. It's an entropic type of thing where water doesn't want to be against a hydrophobic surface. And so one way to entropically favor getting rid of water and removing it from those surfaces is to let those surfaces come together. And so we talk about these as hydrophobic interactions. But they're really removal of water and entropically favorable association of these hydrophobic surfaces and what are aggregates. So the idea of the molecular chaperones is that they each proffer their own hydrophobic surface that masks the hydrophobic surface in a non-native state and prevents this aggregation from occurring. So for example, the chaperone that we studied for a whole bunch of years just surrounds the protein, basically, and it has its own hydrophobic surfaces that essentially mask these and prevent them from misfolding. And then it uses the energy of ATP to just eject a protein into a very interesting little folding chamber where the protein is now in a hydrophilic environment where it folds on its own, where it can't aggregate. It's in solitary confinement. So I think my next slide summarizes uh, first the, the notion that there are chaperones in every cellular compartment. I, there's too much here to go through. But the point is some of these are ring assemblies. Some of these, like the HSP70 class, that's a major class of chaperones that's quite ubiquitous, bind like beads on a string. So they see a little region of the extended polypeptide chain that has some hydrophobicity, and they bind to it and stabilize it and prevent it from associating with other hydrophobic surfaces. So they're fairly ubiquitous. They see proteins when they're coming off ribosomes. They see them before they go across membranes. They see them on the other side of membranes and stabilize them You know, in a variety of cellular compartments. They're all over the place. And there's ring assemblies in this system. I should say the ER has its own sort of lectin, uh, but also hydrophobic binding corrector, the UGGT. It works through a, a addition of a glucose to, as a quality control type of device to bring things back to the lectin. And folding probably occurs somewhere on these lectins using 
oxidoreductases. So this is a different compartment. These are all re relatively reduced, and this is relatively oxidized compartment that uses somewhat different machinery to help a protein reach the native state and then leave the ER for secretion. Okay, enough said about that. So let me summarize our experiments of 20 years. So this is connect the dots of all the structures that we've accreted, both X-ray structures with Paul Sigler and um, EM structures with Helen Sable. Uh, and so now you're going to see this machine, if I can run this properly. Uh, okay, so this, this is the Grohl Chaperona. It's a double ring assembly. And you can see the subunits colored here. These are the equatorial domains that hold this assembly together, these back-to-back -back rings. This is an intermediate hinge domain, and this is a terminal apical domain that has a polypeptide binding surface on the inside that's colored yellow because it's hydrophobic. Now let me advance here. Okay, so now you're gonna look down the ring, and it's actually blocked off at the equatorial levels of both rings. So there's really two compartments at either end. This is all that hydrophobic binding surface that's gonna capture a non-native protein when it be, uh, becomes bound in a ring. But first, in, in a normal cycle, ATP binds in the seven subunits of a ring, causes a small shift of these apical domains, such that a polypeptide can still bind to them, to all that exposed surface through its own hydrophobic surface, and the, a lid structure called Grohl-ES can die. When it does, there's a huge conformational change, an elevation twist, and the polypeptide is stripped off the hydrophobic binding surface and now folds in what we believe are simply using Amphenson's principles. No aggregation can occur. It's completely sequestered in there. At the end of 10 seconds, hydrolysis occurs, ATP leaves, and ATP is now gated to enter the opposite <coughs> ring. The rings go out of phase with respect to each other. And now this ring is building up a folding chamber, and you saw the blue polypeptide, folded polypeptide, leave this ring when the lid came off. So it's a chamber-mediated folding event. Uh, and, and, and people have referred to it as an Amphenson cage. And there's been arguments about how active or passive it is. I think we think that it's a, it, it is an Amphenson cage. It's a passive chamber. Once it has those hydrophilic walls, nothing sticks to those walls. The polypeptide might bang into them, but it still folds on its own and it finds its way to the native state. And I should say that not every polypeptide will reach the native state with every single round at Grohl. So it might fail to reach the native state, but it can come back to the machine or go to some other chaperone in that cellular compartment to try to reach the native state. Okay, so now chaperones and disease. So my uh, lab group has been working on an ALS model in mice. We think that um, the mouse system emulates um, a human neurodegenerative disease probably more accurately in the case of ALS than in some of the other neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, I won't go through it, but the mice paralyze just the way the human beings do, and their pathology looks the same. The whole thing advances just the same way. And so we've generated a strain of mice that are all paralyzed by six months of age. And so that affords us to try all sorts of therapeutic things and see if we can make them live longer at the same time that we're doing basic discovery work to try to understand why this misfolded protein is killing motor neurons and leading to paralysis. So sure enough, in the earliest experiments we did with this system, we saw that this we used a fusion protein where we actually attached a YFP 
uh, at the C-terminus of the misfolded SOD so that we could actually track the protein in motor neurons and see what it's doing. And it also afforded us a handle. So we could use an antibody to the YFP and do affinity capture, pull down whatever the misfolded protein is associating with. And sure enough, we saw that one of these HSP70 proteins called E-cognate 70 is associated with the misfolded SOD. It's the most abundant protein in motor neurons. And now I should say that neuronal tissue is really special. It's, and we don't understand this, but it does not make a heat shock response. So when bad things are happening in neurodegeneration, neurons don't know how to respond. They don't know how to turn up the, the volume of chaperones or the mass of them to counter whatever that stress is from misfolding. There must be some reason for that. Nobody understands that so far. Before a, a neuron becomes differentiated, however, for example, in a culture situation where you use retinomic acid to differentiate a, a neuron into its final state, in its precursor form, it will induce the heat shock proteins. So there's something about neuronal maturation that is, it's antithetical to have the heat shock response go on. So this is a, a cognate protein that's just a housekeeping protein, basically. It handles what I was showing you, traffic of proteins across membranes, the pulling apart of clathrin coats on synaptic vesicles during uh, synaptic vesicle biogenesis and, and cycling, um, at, in, in, as involved with neurotransmission at synapses. Um, and it, it doesn't get induced in our animals. Uh, it, but it's the front line of defense that binds this misfolded protein and presumably can hand it off to the degradation apparatus. Well, we recently noticed that there's also a second protein that looks exactly like an HSP70, but it's actually a nucleotide exchange factor called HSP110. So it does sort of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation of HSP70 pulls out an ADP nucleotide and replaces it with an ATP nucleotide. It has its own peptide binding site, but it doesn't seem to bind non-native proteins. Uh, but we've increasingly, in several systems, observed both in, in, in vitro systems, that this thing seems to be able to rescue aggregation of this SOD protein. And now we've made transgenic mice that are driving HSP110 in neurons. And instead of dying at six months, now they get into trouble at eight months, 10 months. We even have a cohort of animals that have doubled their survival. They're a year old now, and they're perfectly fine. So, so this is one way to try to treat things, is use the natural system, but amp it up a bit and see if that helps. So that has worked in this case. I should say we've also made some new transgenics. They have not only this, but this overexpressed. And they look really good. Their weight is better than what I've ever seen. They're, I pick them up by the tail every day, and instead of being like this, they're normal. They're still like this with their lower extremities. So, so it's possible to think that you could induce these chaperone systems selectively uh, in neurodegenerative conditions and maybe get away with some rescue. OK, so enough about chaperones. Another way that you can get rid of misfolded toxic proteins is to use the ubiquitin proteasome path. And so this is the work of Kichenover and many others who have been amply rewarded in recent years. Uh, but we now know that in, the, in terms of ubiquitin ligases, that put ubiquitin on a protein to ticket it for degradation, 
there are more than 1,000 E3 ligases in a mammalian cell. So there's very good specificity there. And it's nice to think that if you know what the E3 ligase is that can remove a specific toxic form, maybe you could overproduce that. Now, that's not an experiment that anybody's done so far, but it would be interesting to know. The place where we do have uh, the development now of something that could become a therapeutic is at this level. So I want to just say that the proteasome machine functions really in two steps. There's a recognition step where it sees a ubiquitinated protein and binds it to what's called a regulatory particle. It's like a cap on the end of a cylinder. And this is another cylindrical system, different from the one that mediates folding. This is one that's on very narrow channel, loaded with proteolytic teeth at like a one molar concentration. No protein that gets in there ever gets out alive. It's going to be chopped to bits. So what this cap does is to unfold proteins. So it has a bunch of ATPases that are unfoldases with flippers on the inside. It pulls the protein apart as it goes in this channel and channels it into the protease that's loaded with you know, teeth that basically release peptides from the other end. But here, we now have some structural information concerning this regulatory particle that has given rise now to a new therapeutic approach. So this is a, an EM structure from a Berkeley group uh, published about two years ago. Here's the hole where the protein goes into the unfoldase. And this is the grinder down here that basically grinds it into peptides. So this is the so-called substrate entry port. But nobody knew until these kinds of experiments were available how to link the genetic experiments and biochemical experiments with structure and mechanism. And here's an example of how you learn a great deal from a structure. Um, the, the Nogales and Martin Collaborative could identify the critical proteins to binding ubiquitin and to re you have to actually remove this attached ubiquitin chain to let the polypeptide go and be degraded. So these are receptors, RPN10 and RPN13, that recognize the ubiquitin uh, on a ubiquitinated substrate. And then that ubiquitin has to be removed. I'm making a little pointer assistance. I actually have one if, we, if we're desperate here. Um, the, these are ubiquitin-specific proteases, UBP6 and, and uh, RPN11, that are built into the machine. And they basically chop ubiquitin up as it's being uh, uh, passed by them as the substrate is going into that hole. And so they're crucial because if you can't get the ubiquitin off, you can't really get the protein into a hole where it will um, where it, it will be completely degraded. So um, so there is one additional ubiquitin-specific protease. So it's called USP14. And it reversibly associates, we don't know exactly where, with this regulatory particle. And so it's a polyubiquitin trimmer. It takes a long chain and starts to trim it down to a little bit shorter size. And as the chain becomes trimmed a bit, it's no longer so well recognized by the proteasome. So the idea is this guy liberates ubiquitin. And not all proteins are going to be degraded just because they became associated with this regulatory particle. So this thing has regulatory properties of its own. But Dan Finley and his coworkers at Harvard came up with a really interesting idea. They recognized that USP14 is this reversibly associating deubiquitinase 
can inhibit the degradation of uh, the ubiquitin uh, protein conjugates um, by virtue of this trimming activity. And so they thought, uh-huh, maybe you could improve degradation of a protein by actually blocking USP14. So they came up with a small molecule that inhibits USP14, and they tried it in a bunch, that inhibitor in a bunch of different cultured cell conditions. So let me cut to the chase. The USP14 inhibitor, the first one called IU1, promotes degradation by leaving the chain long, right? It's no longer getting trimmed down. And so in cells, they could demonstrate that you now improve the degradation of tau, a toxic protein involved with AD, uh, TDP43 involved with a, a form of ALS, ataxin-3 involved with both um, involved with a, a cerebellar ataxia, and a number of oxidized <coughs> proteins. So this is real. I, I just visited proteostasis therapeutics, and they are really working full blast on versions of IU1 that cross the blood-brain barrier, efficiently inhibit USP14, and I think we'll hear about you know phase one clinical trials fairly soon. So Biogen has seen the the wisdom of this approach, and they've bought into this, and they're they're now partners in trying to develop uh, better forms of this component. So so improving proteolysis by the proteasome is another way that you can think of trying to get rid of amyloids and, and, and misfolded proteins that are going to produce amyloids. Okay, next system, major removal system, because the cell has a limited, only a limited number of ways to get rid of misfolded proteins, is autophagy. So now you're talking about larger aggregates that might be even a micron in diameter. So you make a phagophore that essentially recruits misfolded things, including even intact mitochondria that are damaged for one reason or another. Um, and this then progresses through this whole beautiful pathway of autophagosomal proteins, the ATG set that has been worked out so nicely, um, particularly in Japan, but also by Kleonsky and others in yeast here in the United States, uh, and generates a double membrane autophagosome that then fuses with the lysosome. Forget all the interior stuff here. The idea is it fuses with the lysosome, and now its contents are subject to degradation. So this is a way that you can really get rid of things. And you, and you can regulate this system. We know that, for example, the mTORC1 complex is crucial to regulating uh, autophagy. So for example, rapamycin, an inhibitor of mTORC1, when it does that, leads to the activation of a downstream kinase that's normally phosphorylated and inactivated by mTORC1. In this case, it's not phosphorylated. And that lack of phosphorylation activates ULK1 at the top of the autophagy pathway and improves autophagy. So Steve Finkbeiner, for example, who was actually just visiting New Haven on Monday, we had a really nice conversation. He's at the Gladstone Institute, part of UCSF, right next to it is working on developing new autophagy activators with a high-throughput screen uh, with the assistance, again, of Biogen that's taking a major interest in neurodegenerative disease. OK, so now I want to just talk about what the, the, this end state, the, a potentially toxic state, is of amyloid fibrils. So this is my really, I apologize for this. It's my only print slide. But I think we have to pay homage, really, to the father of the amyloid field who was George Glenner, who worked at San Diego. So um, he was the first person to figure out that this amyloid material actually contained protein in it, and that it contained biologically interesting protein. So he, as early as I think the late 60s, identified 
a light chain amyloid, a piece of light chain in systemic amyloidosis. So the, a systemic, a systemic amyloidosis is induced by inflammatory conditions associated with tuberculosis and other chronic bacterial types of infections. And so I just want to quote him because, I mean, this is, this is really foundational. Much of the mystery about the character of the waxy eosinophilic tissue deposits, which Virchow uh, had believed in 1853 to be com composed of polysaccharides and consequently was designated as amyloid, starch-like or cellulose-like, has now yielded to investigations employing a wide variety of chemical and physical techniques. Once it was demonstrated that unique fibrillar components comprised over 90% of amyloid deposits, efforts to obtain homogeneous concentrates were undertaken, and that's what he did. Uh, dissolution of the fibrils with denaturing solvents permitted fractionation and ultimately protein identification, I mean, uh, sequence analysis. And so that's how he figured out that this was the light chain in this particular amyloidosis. And here, the, in light chain amyloidosis, you have a huge accumulation of things in the liver, the spleen, nerves all over the place. And so it's the bulk of amyloid deposition that's responsible for toxicity. But I'm going to tell you in a minute that it's stuff that's on the way to forming amyloid that's also toxic. So then he said, in all cases, it's a beta pleated sheet structure. He figured that out. A unique conformation, a twisted beta. I'll show you the sheet in just a second. Proteolysis could, so here's A beta. He already smelled that maybe some of these could be produced by proteolytic cleavage. And I'll show you in a minute that he was the person that discovered A beta in Alzheimer's disease. So this is not the consequence of a single disease process, that you could have tinctorial stains to recognize these fibrils. Um, and he talked about proteolytic digestion. I mean, he, he was way ahead of his time. And unfortunately, he himself passed away from an amyloid disease. So this is fiber diffraction. So as early as the 40s, people trying to purify insulin noticed that they were getting fibrils. And they started to try to characterize them. And they did these fiber diffraction experiments where you line up the amyloid fibril in an x-ray beam and shoot x-rays at it. And you get a characteristic pattern of 4.7, uh, roughly, angstrom, what's called meridional reflection. And these are really ugly. This isn't like you know, your standard x-ray uh, image, but they deduced a lot from this. And a 12.6 angstrom uh, uh, reflection, more or less at right angles to it. And so they can figure out that, OK, if you want to model a beta sheet, here's the long axis of a fibril. The 4.76 is the distance between beta strands. And that's true even in native proteins. You have about a 4 to 5 angstrom distance between strands in a sheet. And then they notice that this 12.6 would correspond to how sheets line up with each other. So if you have multiple fibrils or protofibrils within an amyloid fibril, the sheets would be uh, distance about 12.6 uh, angstroms from each other. So this then is a sort of prototypical amyloid. And that's, what, that's really what it looks like. But we've done a little bit better. So David Eisenberg and his co-workers at UCLA um, worked for many years to try to work with microcrystals of short peptides that make amyloids uh, in vitro spontaneously. And finally got good diffraction data and solved the structure of one of these short peptides. And here's what it looks like. And you can see, indeed, there are two sheets here. They're uh, essentially parallel sheets. You see the strands all pointing the same direction. And side chains are alternating. They go out, then they go in, they go in, out, and so forth. 
But you can see that this would be an informationless molecule because the, the, two sheets, the two sheets interact with each other on the inside aspect through their side chains, either through hydrogen bonds or I'll show you what a dry interface looks like in a second. But the stuff pointing outward would have no catalytic activity. In a globular protein that carries out an enzyme reaction, you have an active site at some aspect of that protein by virtue of the fact that it's collapsed, globular, the amino acids are all organized with each other and, and forming a characteristic structure. So this is, again, an informationless molecule. If we all converted to amyloid, we wouldn't be here. We, that, that would be a dead society as far as life goes. Okay, so. The Eisenberg group has taken this a little further recently and tried to block amyloid formation uh, in collaboration with David Baker by making non-natural D-amino acid peptide inhibitors that can block tau amyloid formation in, in vitro experiments. So this was a structure-based design. Um, it was an interesting paper. It, the, the inhibitor didn't work in cells. They obviously have a ways to go. But it's an interesting idea that if you understand what the structure of an amyloid is, you could block its formation by adding the right peptide, for example. So here's a top-down view of what you just saw as a side view. You have two types of interfaces, as David has observed in all of his microcrystals, of quite a large number of different peptides now. So you, you have a dry interface where, look at how these glutamine and asparagine side chains are not, they're not hydrogen bonding. They're, they're fitting into each other as, as if a lock and key here. And the side chains are just looking past each other. They're not even interacting. So that, that's an interesting idea. Are there dry interfaces in the amyloids of A beta? We don't really know that at this point. Then there are more standard wet interfaces that are associated with hydrogen bonding and hydrophobic interactions and other types of interactions. And now we come to Rob Tico's work that is solid state NMR, really trying to see what A beta amyloid fibrils look like. So these, these particular fibrils were grown in a test tube, but he was able to solve the structure. And so here's the 40 residue peptide. It has a little bit of a hydrophobic core, but look at this. Some of these side chains might actually be looking past each other and not bond, particularly bonding, but it's, a, it's basically a beta hairpin. And here's what the sheet would look like looking down a whole series of these hairpins in an amyloid fibril. And he believes that probably in this particular uh, uh, strain or form of a beta uh, amyloid, you really have two of these things lined up anti-parallel to each other with a two-fold axis of symmetry right here. So essentially, the unit would be a, uh, a hairpin here and a hairpin just opposite that. So more recently, he's taken this a step further. And this is really an astonishing result. What he does is he takes a beta fibrils from a patient's head. And now he extends the growth of those fibrils in vitro with isotopically labeled amino acids and now studies the uh, solid state NMR structure of those fibrils. So he sees the same thing that I just showed you, but now from another patient, he sees something completely different, a beta helix where the A-beta-40 is lined up in a completely different way. In fact, it's three A-beta-40s being lined up with each other, but making essentially a beta helical structure. And so this is the, here's the, the antecedent structure that he'd solved. The idea is that A-beta can actually make strains so that individual patients have different aggregates within their heads, but each patient 
the same aggregate uh, of, of a beta, either a, a, a beta helix or this anti-parallel hairpin type thing. So now, to me, that suggests that there's spread occurring, that you make a particular conformation or strain, and that's what populates the CNS, basically, in Alzheimer's disease. So that suggests that you might start in one place, the hippocampus, but now that thing seeds other regions, and now the brain ultimately fills with that particular strain of A-beta. So I think this is one of the most compelling ideas that um, these amyloid proteins are capable of moving from cell to cell, or maybe they get extracellular and then convert other cells to the same uh, misfolded state. Okay, so we've talked about this end state, the amyloid fibril. But there are intermediates on the way to that that are important. And so this is an important paper from the late 90s from Chris Dobson and, and co-workers, where they showed that um, a form of lysozyme that's new, that leads to an amyloidosis with massive hepatosplenomegaly make it easy to get material to study naturally, uh, but they could do it in E. coli as well, makes a very unstable protein. So if you do hydrogen deuterium exchange on this protein, it, on a very short time scale, it's completely exchanged, whereas native lysozyme won't exchange on the time scale of even days. So this is a very unstable protein, and it populates these kinds of intermediate forms where there's toxicity. You could add these intermediate forms even outside of a cell, and it'll kill the cell. So soluble oligomers are very toxic of many of these proteins and probably more toxic than these relatively inert fibrils. These guys damage tissues by filling them up, for example, whereas these intermediate fibrils are exposing surfaces that seem to be very toxic to cells. So now we do actually have a therapy for one of these things. So Jeff Kelly, I think, could be fairly said to be the champion of this, working on transthyretin. Um, which is a, a, a essentially a carrier protein. That's pre, it's pre-albumin that you see all the time when you look at patients' plasma. It's a very abundant peak. Um, it binds thyroxin and it binds um, uh, uh, the there's a bind, another binding protein, retinal binding protein that it also associates with. So it carries thyroxin in these like little pockets here in the tetramer of TTR. So when TTR misfolds because of mutation, for example, you get all sorts of oligomeric states. And these go on to form uh, protofibrils. And they are responsible for familial amyloid polyneuropathy. So this is a condition where TTR accretes just inside the sort of perineural, uh, um, perineurium, inside the neuron, and essentially squishes away the axoplasm. So here you're looking at a. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know whether this is, a, I think it's a cell body, but you're seeing um, contents of that cell body essentially pushed away by the, all this accreted stuff. But I think it accretes also in axons where it's quite toxic as well. So what Kelly thought about was the fact of this pathway of going through intermediates on the way to forming fibrils. And he thought, uh-huh, suppose you could stable the tetramer, stabilize the tetramer by binding a ligand to it that looks like thyroxin, for example, or is any kind of a ligand that just stabilizes the native state. So it no longer comes apart. It no longer fold, forms these intermediates that are on a pathway to making amyloids. That would be therapeutically productive. And so in collaboration with Pfizer, they have now come up with optimized compounds 
I don't know that much about Tefamidus or what it exactly is, but sure enough, it binds in these groups, and in a longer-term study now of these patients, they've shown that they slow down the progression of TTR disease. So I think that's one of the first real successes. Now I want to turn to infectious amyloids. So I think this is a particularly scary and fascinating thing that has captivated a lot of investigators, including Jeff. Um, and, the, and one of the questions, and particularly by virtue of its infectious nature and by virtue of the stunning progression of this kind of disease, it's so rapid and lethal. Um, what can we do about PRP disease? So it really, it really came right to the fore when it became a public health problem in the UK in the mid to late 90s. So first it was noticed that there was bovine spongiform encephalopathy in mad cows seemed to be transmitting through birds. And then it jumped the species barrier, and, and there were new cases of, of CJD in very young individuals that, didn't, that had never been seen before. So the British neurology community knew it was seeing something totally novel, and they could put two and two together that BSC, in fact, was responsible for this transmission to human beings. And in fact, BSC itself, the spread in British herds, came from the dropping of stringency of preparation of cattle feed. So brain parts from sheep and cows were being used to feed other sheep and cows. They'd always been subjected to an organic extraction. But somebody made the decision, no, we don't need an organic extraction. We just go straight ahead and prepare the parts, and that's the new feed. And that was a disaster, because now you have whole herds that became infected. So they did quickly recognize that and went back to the old ways of, 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 of proceeding to prepare their feed. Um, so where are we now? Uh, well, first, in the late 90s, there were uh, cases like this that I'll describe in just a second that are a variant form of CJD that clearly represent BSE jumping across the humans. But it's costing the Brits a major uh, pain in the head right now because the UK has to import all of its blood products because the carriage rate of PRP, uh, scrapey, in the British population is substantial. It might be something like 10 or 20% as judged by tonsillar biopsies. We don't know whether those people are gonna go on to get disease, but we do know that there have been transfusion-associated cases of PRP disease. So the British have simply decided that they have to import all their blood products for the time being until they have a reliable test as to whether blood is containing PRP or not. So how many people might yet get beat CJD? We have no idea. Um, again, significant carriage rate. So here was one of the early cases. 16-year-old schoolgirl, first seen in September 94. She, history of spending time on a dairy farm. This wasn't put together initially. But then um, she fell, she had an injury to her right foot, and strangely, she developed a right-sided backache and then numb fingertips and facial problems, slurred speech, poor balance, clumsiness, urinary frequency. Uh, so this is examination about six months after her first symptoms, oriented but poor recall and dyscalculia, uh, dysarthric speech, ataxic gait, and tension tremor of her left arm, uh, heel, shin, ataxia, uh, and a, an absent right ankle jerk. So she had diffuse neurologic symptoms. EEG started to show some slowing uh, some months later. This is now almost a year later. Deteriorating cognitive function, involuntary movements, persistent opening and closing of hands, myoclonic jerks that were touch sensitive. Finally, they got to a brain biopsy of the non-dominant lobe and found spongiform changes uh, and eosinophilic center of these plaques that had evacuated rim. 
And so these were reacted with PRP, and it became clear that this was sort of this was a new form of uh, of CJD that was likely to be associated with BSC. So here's what they saw pathologically. I don't know that this shows up that well, but there there are these sort of daisy plaques. So they have a, a center, then there's a surrounding light area, and then it's sort of surrounded by a rim. Uh, it's a little over-penetrated here. This is what a Kuru plaque looks like. It's a spike ball. I want to say something about Kuru in just a second. And if you stain with anti-PRP, and this is a different prion uh, disease, Gerswin, Strausler, Schenker, you get antibody positivity in a uh, sort of tissue um, uh, probing experiment. So more generally, the spongiform encephalopathies produce these spongiform change, just sort of absent vacular regions of the brain. Here's a histoblot, again, an antibody probing of a brain of an affected person, nothing in a normal person. OK, so now let's just talk about transmission. So the first transmission of, scrapey, of, of PRP disease was scrapey. This is a scrapey sheet. Uh, I don't know whether it has itchy skin, and that's what causes it to knock all of its fur off. Um, it's, I think that they scrape themselves against the fence. Uh, and it, they're itchy, but they may also be ataxic. And because they're ataxic, they're leaning against the fence all the time. But in any case, the first real transmission was when a vaccine got prepared from sheep and used, uh, this is against a viral agent, and got used to immunize a whole flock of new sheep. And it turned out that the sheep they used to prepare the vaccine got scrapey. And then they noticed that everybody in the flock got scrapey, and they suddenly realized that they had some sort of transmissible agent on their hands. And then um, some years later, uh, in the 4A highlands of New Guinea, uh, Carlton Gashdesek, a pediatrician who went out into the wilds to look at, at, uh, at, at indigenous diseases in those areas, divined that there was transmission of a, a devastating neurologic disease by virtue of a ritual mortuary feast that was carried out by the foray. So when uh, a, a, a beloved family member passed away, there was a funeral service at which the brain of that individual was essentially cooked and devoured by the family members as an act of reverence. And Gashisek figured out that this must be a transmissible condition. Here's a, just a map of Papua New Guinea. Here's the area that's involved. It's this highland area. It's really a spectacular area. This is, this is a couple slides that John Collins sent when he was trying to induce me to go out there to visit their <laughs> site. And I said, nothing doing. I've heard enough about guys trying to sail out in the sea just east of those highlands and being killed by pirates. But it is spectacular. I mean, here's a <laughs> volcano erupting off in the distance. I mean, it's like, you know, imagine that there's never been anybody on this beach probably in months and months. I mean, it's just spectacular countryside. Here's the interior. This is the 4A region and where there are these little villages where this kind of mortuary practice was carried out. And actually, here's the lab. This is the lab where a lot of the Kuru work has been carried out for decades and decades. It's closing down now because we understand Kuru so well. And the last 4A cases are, are, are really pretty much passed. I mean, the cannibalism, or whatever you want to call it, feasting has ended. And nobody is, is further affected. So this is in a town called Wayisa. 
so they have their own generator, and they run this thing and, and stay there and, and uh, garner samples and can do a few uh, crude experiments. So here's Gashtasek's original report for which he received a Nobel Prize. Uh, a clinical syndrome, um, uh, I can hardly read this, uh, astonishingly akin to Kuru and Mann has developed in three chimpanzees from 18 to 20 months after eye intracerebral injection with brain suspension from different Kuru patients. So he was able to transmit this by injecting uh, chimpanzees. And they basically got the same kind of ataxia and discoordination as the human beings got. So that, but that still didn't explain what was actually going on. And so um, was this a viral agent, or what kind of agent was this? And so this is an important experiment carried out by Tikva Alper in Israel, uh, who did not live to see the denouement of this whole thing. But she noticed that basically the ability to transmit was abolished by irradiating at 237 nanometers. Now that does not correspond to a nucleic acid. That's more suggestive of a peptide backbone. And she suggested that this might be a protonaceous kind of condition. But it was really left um, 15 years later for Prusner and co-workers to come along and figure out a purification protocol that basically produced infectious material that was enriched to a point where they could run an SDS gel and actually see material that corresponded to a normal protein. But that normal protein in, in scrapey sheep, for example, was relatively resistant to protonase K digestion, but in normal sheep was totally sensitive to digestion and went completely away. And thus, uh, proteinaceous infectious particle, cDNA cloning, isolation of the message, uh, observation that there was a single gene, that it's in all of us, it's expressed in all of us, led him to think that this is a protein confirmation disease. That you normally make this protein, it goes to the cell surface, it's well behaved, but under some conditions, it gets misfolded and now starts to form amyloids. And that conversion from an alpha helical rich form, so this is a structure from Kurt Butrich, a solution NMR structure of uh, roughly residue 120 to the C terminus, which is roughly uh, 220 uh, in PRP. Uh, contains three alpha helices and just two little snippets of beta uh, strand. Very small, but potentially the nucleating agents for making a beta sheet rich amyloid. So we don't know that much about conversion to PRP scrapie. Uh, we don't know its structure. We know it's enriched in beta sheet character from F type TIR and other kinds of studies. What are the drivers to conversion? Certainly seeding by eating BSE. Uh, infected uh, meat, for example, or being injected accidentally, or being exposed, as uh, neurosurgeons were, to corneas from uh, CJD cases way back in the 60s. Uh, growth hormone was prepared from massive numbers of people, some of which had uh, CJD and transmitted it uh, to uh, recipients of growth hormone. So this, these were drivers, uh, PRPC seeding. But also, from work that's come from Hanover, from a search eyes group, uh, and this is a recent paper of theirs in Structure, published last year, there seems to be a need for at least phospholipids and potentially polyanions in the form of RNA to, to promote this conversion process to the scraping form that's really the infectious fibrillar form uh, of, of, of scraping, or of PRPSC. 
But uh, again, soluble oligomers appear to be able to contribute substantially to toxicity. And um, I'll finish off in just the next minute or two here. Um, soluble forms, as shown by um, Byron Coey's group, have the highest specific activity for infectivity, whereas the aggregates are much less infectious. So it's collections of 10 or 12 of these misfolded molecules in a scraping form that can produce disease. OK, so how, what can we do about scraping? Well, collagen co-workers, going back to Waisa and, and the locality of um, the 4A Highlanders, have noticed that there actually is a natural form of resistance where you convert glycine-127 to valine. And then you can eat your relatives, and nothing happens to you. <laughs> These were women who had lived through the mortuary feast and never gotten disease, because this is a non-convertible molecule. The PRPC form of G127V is stuck in the C form, and it doesn't convert to the scraping form. So that's one way out. The other is to shut off PRPC altogether. So Malucci and coworkers, another college paper, used a Cre-Lox approach to knock out PRP, um, PRPC just at the point where their animals, this is a mouse experiment, started to get sick. So here you see CA1 looking terrible here, being gobbled up. But if you first treated with your Cre, now at the same time point, you have a perfectly normal looking CA1. And these animals, instead of having spongiform degeneration, no longer have it. They look terrific. So um, another means of shutoff that I think may come to fruition very soon is the use of antioxidants, oligonucleotides as drugs. So Isis Pharmaceuticals in Carlsbad, California are the major venturers on this. And they are trying 12 to 21 nucleotide DNA or RNA-like compounds that basically can bind messenger RNAs and lead to their inactivation and turnover. So there's a lot of optimization that goes on with this, but it's being tried in quite a number of different things. I won't detail them. This looks like the first that's actually working somewhat therapeutically. So in spinal muscular atrophy, if you can make SMN2 splice correctly, you can rescue the patients. And so the oligo that they've prepared against the misspliced junction to make the, the SMN2 splice correctly looks like it may actually work. So the question is, can you get enough effect to work against some of these other conditions? And I don't think we know yet. So another approach that collagen coworkers have taken against PRP is to use antibodies. And they showed that if you infect an animal the sort of BSE route, intraperitoneally inject PRP scrapey, and supply antibodies against PRP uh, that have been generated against PRPC, you can block disease. And the animals basically live out to a fairly long time period. On the other hand, those antibodies did not work against intracerebral injection. Another, another way forward uh, is uh, another paper from Malucci. She recognized, now independent from college in her own group in the UK, that the UPR is turned on in, in scrapey disease. And in fact, one limb of that is the perkinase which essentially phosphorylates uh, EIF2-alpha and essentially um, inhibits uh, translation as a result of this. And so in, in scrapie-infected cells, translation is down-modulated. And her idea was, I'm going to reverse this. I'm going to take a PERC inhibitor, inhibit PERC, and ask for cytosolic translation to be improved, and ask what that does clinically. Well, actually, it does quite a lot. So they 
teamed up with GSK and made a PERC inhibitor. And now translation goes pretty normally. And uh, synaptic proteins look normalized. Hippocampal architecture looks a lot better, less spongiosis. Survival is improved. The problem with this is that it affects the pancreas. And so we know that PERC minus minus mice die as new forms of insulin deficiency. With here in this clinical trial, there was mild elevated blood sugar, and they had to stop the trial. But the overall idea is that you block PERC, you block a fatal reduction in protein synthesis. So in addition, I should say that Collagen and Glaxo are making compounds that bind to PRPC. This is sort of along the lines of TTR and Jeff Kelly's experiments, and stabilize it against conversion to scrapies. So that may actually be another approach. Okay, so I'm going to finish with just a couple comments about A beta disease. So, in fact, Glenner was the person to recognize A beta peptides. He used gel filtration and uh, various denaturants uh, to actually isolate A beta peptides from Alzheimer's brain. There's a plaque. So, I think the community is looking now to see if Merck's uh, target. Beta secretase, which has a giant active site, it was hard to generate a compound that inhibits it. But they have one. It's non-toxic. It reduces A beta levels to practically zero in the patients who are on it in phase one and phase two trials. The question is, what is it going to do in phase three? We're going to have to wait a couple years, but we will get an answer to whether this sort of logical approach to inhibiting the production of A beta will be therapeutic. We won't know for a little while. Then there have been two papers in the last year or two that have identified, or three, that have identified that PRP and another cell surface protein are actually able to bind oligomers of A beta and induce toxicity by virtue of that binding. So this is, these are now hippocampal LTP experiments. Uh, I won't go through this in the interest of time. But uh, an experiment from Yale, from Steve Stridmatter's group, but confirmed by others in the UK, suggests that PRPC might be one of the receptors for oligomers of A-beta, transducing a signal that's toxic to cells. And so if you could actually make good antibodies to PRPC, you might be able to be block A-beta toxicity. More recently, a paper from Carla Schatz has identified a second molecule, the pure B receptor that's involved with uh, optical uh, dominance plasticity. But it also seems to bind A-beta oligomers. And it's possible that it could be blocked or it could be blocked downstream where it works on cofilment. Uh, and so that's another avenue, potentially. And then two days ago, a paper was published in J Neuroscience from Collinges Group suggesting that antibodies might, against PRP indeed might be able to work in this context. So here they've added a humanized anti-PRP antibody. Uh, and at the same time, they add a beta from a, uh, Alzheimer's brain. This is in a mouse system. And they see, they're now looking at LTP. And here you see improved LTP when you add this uh, antibody prior to adding uh, an AD brain extract. Uh, here's the lost LTP that occurs when the, you just add buffer along with the toxic uh, a beta uh, segment of brain. So finally, I think we have to consider a couple other approaches. Uh, I think neuronal circuitry could be crucial to misbehavior, and that it, albeit it lies downstream from toxicity of uh, misfolded proteins. But you can think about correcting uh, neuronal firing. For, for example, in ALS, the only drug we have is really all, which prolongs lifetime a month or two. 
but it basically blocks neuronal firing of motor neurons, quiets them down, and maybe that maybe thinking about such kinds of therapies in the nigrostriatal system and hippocampal system may be reasonable. I think stem cell therapy is a possibility. Neuronal precursor cells or other neuronal types are possible. Uh, there was a recent science paper a few weeks ago where differentiated motor neurons were injected into uh, sciatic nerve distal to a ligation. And axons grew out from those motor nerves and actually innervated muscle and improved contractility. Finally, I think all of these conditions have a big inflammatory component that remains relatively unstudied so far. For example, our mice stop having protein aggregation about four months into their six-month course of ALS. And what happens that actually causes them to paralyze? We're thinking that maybe during the last two months of life, it's inflammatory disease, something at the level of astrocytes or microglia, T or B cells, that progress the animals to paralysis. So I think this issue of inflammation is something that really has to be considered. Well, I'll stop there, and I thank you very much for uh, this kind invitation and for your attention. No sugar. Well, what, why is it staying for sugar? Ah, um, I don't know. It's possible that some of the proteins maintain glycosylation uh, even as they mishold. And that's why Burkow saw what he saw, that um, there is some carbohydrate trap. For example, PRP has two uh, glycosylation sites. And so um, those uh, glycosylated sites are probably still present even in the converted protein, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, do you think that the lack of ability to induce heat shock proteins is the reason why uh, the neuronal tissue is the most sensitive to proteotoxic stress? And that's a real possibility, that other tissues would just forestall this. I think the other thing that contributes is that the neuronal tissue is post-mitotic. So, you know, whatever the garbage is that you accumulate over many decades, you really have to work with the garbage collection that you've got available. And, it, you know, if the garbage collection machinery with age is not as efficient, we don't really know that formally. Um, I, you know, the, you, you're, you have a, a stuck situation. Whereas mitotic cells can basically, in the liver, for example, are just continually dividing. If they're insulted, those cells will die and will, you know, they're the trigger to further uh, hepatocyte replication. And so you can get around a lot of misholding kinds of conditions this way. So I think post-mitotic stuff contributes to this significantly. I think we'll have to stop, but thank you for the richest hour I can recall. Very <laughs> <laughs> Sure.